Hello and welcome. <laughs> oh, why? Sorry. Sorry. What happened? I just was thinking about how you're dumb. Well, now I'm afraid to say hello. Oh, I'm hello and welcome back to another True Crime Tuesday. Oh, True Crime Tuesday. Oh. <laughs> hello and welcome back to another. The way I said hello. <laughs> Would you like to buy some vanilla spice spritzers? Um, <clears throat> hello and welcome back to another true crime. T- you sound like you're reading the news <laughs> on today's news. That's offensive. Anyways, <clears throat> hello and welcome. Now I'm really self-conscious of my intro. Okay, what's up, guys, and welcome back to another true crime Tuesday episode here on Spill the Tea with B and T. I'm your host, Tori. And I'm your host, Brooke. Today we have a very interesting and unsolved true crime case for you guys, the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. This episode does contain graphic descriptions of murder and sexual assault on minors. If this topic disturbs you, please click off and wait for future episodes. With that being said, let's begin with the case. Dun dun! There's nothing more tragic in this world than the loss of a child, especially when it's to such a heinous crime. There is something about the case that we'll be talking about today that leaves people in shock still to this day. This case begins on June 12, 1977, when a busload of local Girl Scouts entered the grounds of Camp Scott, which was founded in the Ozark Hills of Oklahoma in 1928. Camp Scott was a camp designed to give girls ages 8 through 18 the opportunity to spend their summer outdoors, building bonds and friendship with other girls and local Girl Scouts. Brooke, were you ever lucky enough to go? I don't know if I'd say lucky enough. Did you ever get to go on, like, a sleepaway camp? Because I can tell you my parents were very strict, as you heard in other episodes, and they would have never let me do that. I went to one sleepaway camp as a kid, and I had to beg my parents for weeks to let me go. It was a church camp, and it, I mean, it wasn't easy convincing. It took weeks and weeks of me trying to convince my parents. I went, and I wish I would have stayed home. (laughs) Mom, can you please let me go to this camp so I can get closer with Jesus? Please. Um, No, I'm going to be honest before we get into this case. Every time I think of any kind of camp, I think of Crystal Lake. Camp Crystal Lake. I know that's really terrible, but anytime I think of like going camping, even to this day, I'm like, people want to tent it? Nope. Mm -mm. Camp Crystal Lake. I know know where Jason lives. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I just... (laughs) I think back on my church camp and it was very Camp Crystal Lake vibe. Oh, in all seriousness, young girls like Lori Farmer, age 8, Michelle Gousset, age 9, and Denise Milner, age 10. And before we get more into the case, we wanted to take a few moments to give you some information and backstories on the girls and their personalities. Michelle Gousset was described as an active, athletic, and happy girl by her parents. Michelle had actually attended Camp Scott the year before and was looking forward to spending another week in the wilderness with fellow Girl Scouts. Michelle's mother said that on the morning before they had dropped her off camp, Michelle ran downstairs and sat on her lap telling her how much she was going to miss her and wanted to make sure her mother remembered to water her plants while she was gone. Michelle's father was later quoted saying, It was like a premonition. She hugged us goodbye and was saying goodbye like she would never see us again. That quote just breaks my heart. So, Denise Milner was described as a great big sister and a mama's girl. She would get anxiety even at sleepovers at neighbors' houses and would call her mom in the middle of the night to come pick her up. We all knew a girl like this, and that's okay if you were her. Denise's mother was shocked when Denise had asked to go to Camp Scott. At first, Denise's mom declined due to her anxiety being away from home, but Denise had promised she wanted to go and wouldn't ask her mom to come get her. 
Reluctantly, Denise's mother gave in, but the night before camp, Denise began to get anxiety and wanted to back out. Denise begged her mom not to make her go, but her mom had decided to put her foot down and leveled with Denise. She told her to spend one night, and if the next morning she wanted to go home, she would pick her up. My sister was this girl. I remember her begging my mom to go to sleepovers and my mom you know she'd be like no because all you're gonna do is call me at 2 a.m crying wanting me to come get you and I mean this lasted until she was junior high like 14 15 and I don't know it just breaks my heart because when I hear stories about this like I just I imagine my little sister and if something this horrible would have happened to her like it just it breaks my heart yeah my brother actually he is 12 now and he even gets really bad anxiety sleeping at my house he, he just doesn't like to be away from home. He doesn't like to be in unfamiliar places. It's totally normal. I, I was one of those girls, though, that you could, I would stay away from home for a week. I would sleep in my friend's house for a whole year if I could. Lori Farmer was described as adventurous and wanted to do everything that the big girls were doing. Despite her age and being the youngest camper, Lori had begged her mom for months to go to Camp Scott. Her mother was hesitant due to her age, but eventually had gave in to Lori's constant begging to go to camp. Lori had wanted to attend two summer camps that year, one being Camp Scott and the other being a YMCA camp. She had no preference on which one to go to, so her mother decided for her. Her mother was later quoted saying, I decided for her. I also decided which weeks of camps to send her to, and I will have to live with that for the rest of my life. As a parent, I literally couldn't even imagine having that kind of thought and everyone always is going to have that kind of guilt in that situation whenever you lose a loved one you're you're going to always say I should have done this or I could have done this or you know there's always going to be that guilt but so unfortunately this would be the girls first and last night at camp the girls had been divided into eight tents on the campground cabins one was for the camp counselors and cabin two through eight were for the campers Michelle Denise and Lori and a fourth fellow girl named Angela had been assigned to tent eight Camp counselors had removed Angela from tent 8 when a spot opened up in another tent with the original group she'd came with. Angela says to this day she can't figure out why she was the one that was spared. And I do want to point out, I, as a parent, would not be okay. And I know this was a different time. This was a long time ago. But I would not be okay with my child sleeping in a tent alone without any adults in a tent in a tent, in the wilderness, not even just for creepy, scary predators, but bears, any any kind of something happening. What if one girl breaks her leg and can't get to help? I, I just, I would never be okay with that. Not only that, like, you know, Tori's talking about bears, predators, whatever. I am one of those kids that I have horrible, horrible allergies. I mean, to the point that when I go up camping, there's times where I literally damn near overdosed myself on allergy medications to the point because I can't breathe, I can't do anything, and I know I am a worrywart through and through. I'm constantly thinking of 80 of the bad scenarios before I, you know, think of one good scenario, but that's just something I think about is what if something happens and there's not someone to get to that, you know, your child fast enough, and tent eight, so like I said, it was tents one through eight, Tent one was for the counselors. Tent eight was the farthest away from the counselors. So those three girls were literally the farthest away from the counselors. And I mean, like Tori said, I know it's a different time now, but call me a worrywart. Call me, you know, crazy, whatever you want to say. But my kids will never, never. You want to go camping? We'll go up with grandma and grandpa, but you're not going up with people I don't know. 
especially at ages like eight through 10, that is, that's to me very, very young. Like I said, you know, it was a different time, but that's a really, really young age. So two months before the girls had arrived at Camp Scott, another group was there on a youth trip and the camp was ransacked. One of the counselors had found a note in an empty donut box that read, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one and a hand-drawn stick figure man hanging from a tree with a rope around its neck. The note was dismissed and thought to be a joke, so nobody reported it. Once again, a little side note, I would want as a parent and I would hope as a parent or just even a person as a as another camp counselor that you would give me this information before even if they think it's a joke you know like bomb threats at school they they don't necessarily know it's true they have no concrete evidence you know but they're gonna lock it down and they're gonna inform everybody and their parents and as a parent or even as a counselor I would want to know the stuff that's been going on before of course if your safety is possibly a risk whether you think it's a joke or not or whether you take it serious or not that's information you should have. So on their first and last night at camp, a thunderstorm had rolled in about 6 p.m. and the girls ate dinner in the mess hall and then reported to their tents. With not much to do, the girls decided to write letters to their families back home. Michelle's last letter read, Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I am fine. I am writing from camp. We can't go outside because it's storming. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent on our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is shades of purple. Love, Michelle. Lori's last letter read, Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy, we're getting ready to go to bed. It's 745. We're at the beginning of a storm and having lots of fun. I have met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping in cots. I couldn't wait to write. We are all writing letters now because there is hardly anything else to do. Love, Lori. Now this next letter will literally send chills up your body because when I read it, I mean, it broke my heart and it, I mean, it just made me sick. Denise's last letter home read, I don't like camp. It's awful and the first day it rained. I have three new friends named Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. Love, your loving child, Denise. Honestly, knowing what happened to those girls and hearing that letter, it breaks my heart to say the very least. So you can imagine wanting your child to go home and you left them there and the guilt she must live with every day is probably overwhelming. Obviously, there's no way for her parents to know Denise wanted to go home. She wrote the letter about 7, 45, 8 o'clock and she would never be heard from again. But honestly, that just it really does break my heart, like I said. And yeah, it's just a very ominous feeling to it. I mean. To get that letter in the mail must have just, I mean, broken her heart. And I don't know if it was, you know, received, you know, police had found it. I couldn't really find much information or if it got to her weeks later in the mail. I don't know what happened, but all I can imagine is that pit in your stomach knowing that's the last thing that your child felt. Yeah, and like I said in the beginning, you know, whenever something like this happens, you feel so much guilt. I can just imagine that being so much more adding on top of that and it's so horrible because you know like like we said there's nothing that she would have known or no idea you know no one would think that this would ever happen to their child in a million years but it really is just so tragic so what happened next is even worse camp counselors and other girls were quoted saying they heard strange noises throughout the night but for some reason it wasn't looked into and i know that if i was in charge of 27 children's lives 
you could bet your ass that I would be looking into every sound, every flash of light, every, I mean, anything, because you're in charge of those girls, whether they get home or whether they don't. That is your job. That is what you're being paid to do. And not even if you think about it, money, that's on you. If someone, I know that if I was babysitting someone or I was in charge of a girl's camp, if something happened and it was my fault, I would not be able to live with myself. But I guess that's just looking in hindsight, right? Oh, yeah. I bet those camp counselors would have wished they looked into those noises more. And I wish they would have looked into those noises more. I, even myself, I would, I would want to check out what's happening, even if not just for me, but for those kids. But definitely, I would look into the noises. How can you hear something and have these crazy notes going on? But that's, that's the whole problem with this case is there was no communication. Nobody really knew of the other it was so many separate incidences. If if they had known about the letters and the crazy things that had been happening and then hear strange noises, I feel like this would have all maybe went very different, but we'll never know. So, so at some point before 10 p.m., a camp counselor sees a light moving north towards the camp. Camp counselors did a small check and felt that everything was okay and went back to bed. Around midnight, a group of noisy campers who snuck out of the tent were escorted back to their tent which was tent six, only two tents away from the girls in tent eight. At about 1.30, the same counselor that took the girls back to the tent shined her light in the window and shouted at the girls to stop. At this time, she hears what she described as a strange sound coming from behind the tents. She described it as a low, guttural sound, somewhat like a frog or a bullhorn. And she decided not to check it out. (laughs) So when she shines her light towards the sound, it stops. So she didn't do any further investigating, and the girls just went back to bed. As a parent, let me tell you that if this came out in reports weeks later, I would be angry is not even a good word to describe how I felt while reading this case. Like these aren't even my girls. And I'm like, what the like, what the hell were you doing? Explain. And I just I mean, why would you not look into that more? No one understands why you wouldn't look into that more. I'm I'm sure no one can relate to that, and I'm sure that's one of her biggest regrets, especially, like you said, hindsight, you know, looking back at this, I'm, I'm very certain that she probably wishes she would have looked into it. Around 3 a.m., there are two different reports that say fellow campers were saying that they were woken up by weird noises. One of them said it was a scream, and the other girl said it was crying out for her mother. And at the same time, someone is reaching into tents and stealing items such as purses and even weirder items were stolen were prescription glasses. The last report was from the girls in tent seven who said the tent flap was pulled back and a man shined a light into the tent and then closed it, moving to tent eight. And all of these are different reports that nobody looked into. I mean, these poor girls and these parents, like these poor parents that had to hear this and I mean, just feel that, like, why was my kid not a priority to you? I think that's definitely one of the saddest parts of this is, you know, all of these things that lined up and all of these things that were happening. We keep saying over and over, you know, how did all of these things happen? And no one looked into it. No one investigated. No one checked it out. Everyone just everyone just brushed it off and didn't take it seriously. And, you know, we may never know if that could have been a huge turning point and maybe could have saved these girls lives. So to me, I think one of the saddest parts is the girl who was crying for her mom. I, like I said a million times, I'm a mom and that makes me 
sick to my stomach to even think about my child or anyone else's child feeling like that. And no one knows who it was for sure, but all I can think is, like we mentioned earlier, that everyone was quoting Denise as a mama's girl. So, I mean, I know I'm a mama's girl through and through. Still, at 23, if something goes wrong, my mom is the first person I call. And all I can think is, God, that was her last feeling was, I just want my mom to pick me up. I just, you know, I want to go home. So the next morning, Carla Wilhites, a camp counselor, woke up at 6 a.m. so she could shower and be ready before the girls woke up for the day. On her way to the shower, she noticed something at the fork of the trail. She at first thought it was a forgotten luggage, but realized it was the body of a girl, lying face down and naked from the waist down. This body was later identified as Denise. She had obvious head injuries, and her hands were still tied behind her back. Shortly later, the bodies of Lori and Michelle were discovered by Richard Day, who was the director of Camp Scott. Lori and Michelle were discovered naked from the waist down, partially in sleeping bags, and they also had some pretty severe wounds. Barbara Day, a co-owner of Camp Scott and wife to Richard Day, calls the police. While camp counselors were told to manage the other Girl Scouts and keep them away from the crime scene, they didn't want the girls to witness what had been done to their fellow campmates. The other girls were loaded into buses and bused back to Tulsa where their parents had all been contacted and told to be at the bus station where they had told there was an accident. Not told of the gruesome attacks or that three girls would not be returning home. One by one, camp counselors had called the girls' names to unload the bus and reunite with their parents. Until all the girls had been called except for Michelle, Lori, and Denise. The parents waited as their little girls never got off the bus. A heartbreaking shot for the parents, who not only had to watch the other children run into the arms of their families while they would never be able to hold their daughters again. And just Tori, you know, like we mentioned earlier, you're a mother. Could you imagine or, I mean, how would you even handle that? These parents were upset and in my opinion, rightfully so. I mean, like, what what do you think coming from a mother's perspective? And this is just my opinion, but honestly, I would be livid. And I'm sure a lot of people would be livid. It would be so many mix of emotions of being upset to being sad and being confused. Like, I... I think of this all the time when I see these cases of, you know, these kids that never come home from school or what do you think? Like, I I can't even wrap my head around the idea of it, but I just know that I would be pissed. I would be like, where's my kid? I would be sad. Like, is something wrong? What's going on? I would be I would be feeling so many different things, but I I can't even imagine the the horrible feelings and emotions you must be going through in that very moment. So by 8 p.m. on June 13th, Sheriff Glenn Weaver knew that this was a job too big for his team and would need help from the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation. Highway Patrol Officer Harold Berry was the first on site, and he had been quoted admitting that he swept the area around the bodies um, and kept it clear of any crime scene contamination, but the surrounding areas had not been kept as clear. He was later quoted as saying, I am positive that there were only one set of footprints. However, due to the large size of Camp Scott and the importance of getting other girls out, the general scene was not secured until much later. Upon investigation of the crime scene, investigators believed that little Lori and Michelle were beaten to death inside of their tent based upon the blood splatter on the walls and floor. And sadly, they were both sexually assaulted. The killer had tried to clean up the scene using a bed sheet, but did a horrible job and left a footprint of a men's boot size nine and a half. No fingerprints were found. Denise, however, had a much more gruesome death. 
Which is so strange to me. Why did he single her out? Was it because of her age? Because she was older and bigger and put up a fight? Or, I mean, this may be very controversial, but she was the only African-American at Camp Scott at the time. And obviously she had a much more gruesome death. I mean, not saying that the other two deaths weren't gruesome, but the fact that they had dragged her out and, I mean, they really put this girl through the ringer. I also don't know, and I don't think we'll ever know. And Denise had been found with a pre-made gag inside of her mouth, and her attackers either forced her to walk where she was later killed or carried her over there. She was also beaten, sexually assaulted, and also had been strangled to death, unlike Lori and Michelle. It appears that these attacks had been planned in advance. I mean, the pre-made gag, the notes that were found at Camp Scott weeks prior, and he even brought a pair of nylon tights and a roll of duct tape to use to bind the girls. Definitely sounds premeditated to me. The autopsy would later show that the girls all had traces of semen left and a red flashlight was later discovered. Do you think that this could be the flashlight that they had seen moving around earlier? Oh, definitely. It makes sense. It appeared that more than one weapon had been used in the attacks and two different knots had been tied. It wouldn't be long until investigators discovered that the rope and tape had recently been stolen from a local farm about one mile away from Camp Scott. Farmer Jack Schroff had an alibi for the night of the murder and also passed a voluntary lie detector test. A couple of days into the investigation, officers and investigators had already eliminated some main suspects and Sheriff Weaver had one more person of interest, a local Cherokee Indian named Jean Leroy Hart, who had been on the run from local law enforcement after escaping Mays County Jail just four years earlier and was also last known to be in the Ozark area. Gene Hart's criminal past had severely damaged his reputation. He was on the run from law enforcement after he was convicted of kidnapping and impregnating two women from a nearby club in 1966. The women were bound with duct tape and rope. Like the Oklahoma Girl Scout, he also used prescription glasses while driving. After the rapes, he had attempted to kill the girls by duct taping their noses and mouths and leaving them to die in the woods. Luckily, both victims survived these brutal attacks, and one victim later described him as being quote-unquote incoherent during the attacks and making growling slash grunting noises. Jean vanished while being on parole for the attacks and was arrested a second time for burglary. If it's not scary enough to be attacked, could you imagine being attacked by someone making those kinds of inhuman noises? Well, and remember earlier when the girls or the camp counselor had said that there were these strange noises, almost like a, a bullfrog or a bullhorn, you know, like the low, like grunting noises. So I'm like, hmm. I'm going to go ahead and take a leap and say it's not a coincidence. So Gene Hart had actually pled guilty to both of the rapes of the women and burglaries, and he was sentenced to 305 years in prison. Many people speculated that the Cherokee community were hiding him and helping uh, Gene Hart evade arrest, but many people also speculated that he was being framed for the murders by Sheriff Weaver, who was also in charge of the jail that he escaped from. People thought that Sheriff Weaver were so angry that he escaped and made him look bad that they were framing these crimes to get back at him. And let's not forget something that people commented on heavily during the time of the crime. The fact that semen was left behind on three girls, but people had stated that he had a vasectomy after the two rapes. Police wanted to find Hart and find him quickly. Police brought in tracker dogs, but it led to nothing. The force was large and described as dense in many reports, and it was also reported that searchers frequently got lost while searching the forest. Tips did come in that would help police. In a mountain cave overlooking Camp Scott, Oklahoma Sheriff's Bureau of Investigation discovered a pair of red women's underwear, a photo of two women, 
a torn out newspaper article, and a pair of glasses that belonged to one of the counselors at Camp Scott. The pictures of these two women were put out by officers in an effort to find who these women were and what tie they had to whoever had the picture. Later in the investigation, it came out that the women ran a photography course in the prison Jean was at one point incarcerated in, and the cave was close enough to walk from Jean's mother's home. Two weeks after the murder, a local farmer had reported that he seen Jean on a hillside near his home. Police went to investigate and found a fire in cigarette butts. The butts tested positive to match Jean's O blood type, and there was also a boot print left that matched the boot prints at Camp Scott. But get this, Jean, the primary suspect, was a size 11. So either he wasn't involved or there was a second killer involved like we speculated earlier. Our third and final lead was another cave about one mile away from the camp on the property of Jack Schroff. A prisoner had told police about the cave and claimed he met Jean Hart there after the murders. The prisoner was 16 years old and was later convicted for killing his son that was only three years old at the time. A letter was on the walls of the cave that read, quote, the killer was here, bye-bye, fools, <laughs> and dated 77-6-17. So, obviously, can we go ahead and assume that means June 17th, 1977? I mean, I'm no, no numerologist, but <laughs> who's the real fool? I really prefer date, month, year, not year, month, date. Um, and if you disagree, you can go ahead and block me on every social media and don't unsubscribe from this podcast because we need the clout. So finally, after 10 long months of searching, the OBSI got a huge break in the case. An informant had been working with agent Larry Bowles and discovered that Gene Hart had been hiding with a friend named Sam Pigeon, 50 miles away from Camp Scott. Pigeon said he was convinced that Gene was innocent and had been letting him stay there for eight months. On April 6, 1978, OBSI had surrounded and arrested Gene Hart. Agent Bull said to Jean, quote, you killed those girls, didn't you? Unquote. And Jean had replied, you'll never pin this on me. At the time of the arrest, Jean was also wearing women's prescriptions of glasses that didn't belong to him. What a fetish. Just why? I, I have so many questions. This is not the only one, but this is a large one. Well, have you ever wore glasses that weren't yours and you can't fucking see shit? Like, I just want to know how. Like, that's my main question is just how. Because I remember, like, wearing my grandma's glasses as a kid and, like, being blind as fuck. Oh, no. I wore glasses. Well, <laughs> um, I'm going to rephrase. I'm supposed to wear glasses. And when I wear someone else's prescription, it, it, it's like you're wearing drunk goggles. It, it's terrible. And I've heard about people taking, like, you know little memorabilias from their crimes or whatever but to wear them and it's not even like he's wearing a hat or a glove he's wearing fucking glasses like make it make sense it, you can't so the trial began march of 1979 and this trial took a huge toll on the victim's families as expected those who believed hart was innocent continually harassed the families of the victims and local law enforcement there is very little evidence Jean allegedly left at the crime scene, and as mentioned before, Officer Weaver did have some resentment and animosity towards Jean. Over 400 people attended a fundraiser dinner to raise money for Hart's defense. Hart was described by someone who said he is charismatic and knows the power of media. He gave an interview that had aired on TV before the trial where he said, Maybe I represent the fears and the doubts that many people have about any system that has the means and the power to overwhelm each and every one of us. 
I wish I could say it was uncommon for people to be wrongly convicted of crimes. And so do I. A study says that up to 10,000 people a year may be wrongfully convicted of a serious crime a year. I mean, that, that's a huge number. But let's not forget, he's not totally innocent. Even if he didn't kill these three girls, he'd been convicted and admitted to two rapes and three different burglaries. Like, I want to go back and say the fact that that many people, 400, showed up for a fundraiser for a man who confessed to raping and impregnating two women, confessed to it. And they were like, oh yeah, he's just so charismatic and, you know, he's, he's really not that bad. I just, I... I can't wrap my head around it, so I'd really like some explanation on that and maybe a little more insight on from some of the people what mindset you have to be in. Not only raping and, you know, getting them pregnant, but let's not forget that he tried to kill them. It was just unsuccessful. He did try to murder these women. So, you know, what's to say that he didn't try with these three girls and succeed? You know what? Even if he was innocent of these murders, I will, I'll give it to him, you know, but... I'm not going to feel bad for a guy who has done horrific crimes and you can never convince me otherwise. You know, I hope that if he were to be innocent, you know, that that would be proven. And But at the same time, I, I don't, I don't feel bad. And let's not forget that during the time this, you know, crime had occurred, he was supposed to be in jail for 305 years or pretty much the rest of his life. And either if he would have just stayed in jail like he was supposed to, he wouldn't have been wrongfully convicted or these crimes would have never happened. Um, really quick, I wonder why, I know why, but I think it's so weird when they sentence people to 305 years. Like, I know that, you know, the court system works a certain way and there's certain offenses that get a certain amount of years. But, like, could you imagine they're like, oh, instead of giving this life, we're going to give him 305 years and he serves his 305 years because he's a fucking vampire or some weird shit. I feel like that would happen. Don't come for me, but I feel like that would be the instance where they're like, we gotta, we gotta fix something. We gotta change it up. Johnny's a vampire. We, we gotta, we gotta change some, some roles in here. I don't know. That's just a random thought. Cause someone I saw was sentenced to 10,000 years in another case. And I just want to know what the fuck is the point? Like, you think he's counting down the days in his jail cell, like one by one? Only 9,999 years to go. Yeah. I just, I want to know why. So back to the case, there were only two usable items of forensic evidence that they could use against him. The hair they had pulled from the duct tape left at the crime scene came back to be a 99% match for Jean. Prosecutors brought in a professor, John McCloyd, to examine the semen, and he had said there was a rare abnormality in a large number of the semen present. And his sperm also had abnormalities. Hmm, most likely due to his vasectomy. But this was back in 1979 when DNA wasn't used to convict someone of a crime. Now, let's get into the defense. And all I have to say is this man better be grateful for that defense team he had and everyone who showed up to that fundraiser because, as we all know, being on the defense side in the courtroom is not an easy task. The bloody boot print in the tent was too small to be a match to Gene's shoe size and none of his fingerprints were left behind at the scene. Gene also had a alibi for the night of the attack, and let's go back to the fact that he wasn't in jail like he was supposed to fucking be, but he was at an uncle's house. But unfortunately, the man or the uncle who could testify and verify this alibi had passed away during the time of the investigation. But once again, if Gene would have kept his ass in jail, he would have had a real solid alibi. 
Jean could not be proven guilty and was never charged with the murders of the girls. There were also several more suspects, but also could not be proven of the crime. Sadly, this case is still considered a cold case, and who knows if these girls or their families will ever get the justice they deserve. Which is just, I mean, truly heartbreaking because to lose your child in such a brutal way is, I mean, incomprehensible. And to not have anyone to hold accountable would just, I mean, that'd be the worst feeling. You have, you know, you outlive your child and no one's held accountable for the crimes. And I, I just can't imagine. A civil suit was later filed against Magic Empire Girl Scouts by Lori, Denise, and Michelle's families for $2.5 million each. There are records in the newspaper that Camp Scott was being stalked by a dangerous person and even more possible persons before the murders. And in no point during this time, there was any law enforcement called or any charges made to improve the safety of the campers to come. And like we said, the lack of communication in this case and between counselors and just throughout the camp and to parents and just everybody in general may be a large contributing factor to the girl's death. And it gets even worse from there because somehow the family lost the civil suit. And just like us, you're wondering, how the fuck? Former camp counselor Constance Cunningham testified that in the summer of 1971, she'd spent the night, quote unquote, huddled inside a tent with four girls and a gun. She said that she did this because a strange man had entered the tent the night before. And an article came out in the Oklahomian that stated... During her two years as a camp counselor and oh, during her two years as a counselor, campers and okay. During her two years as a counselor, campers and counselors' tents were ransacked on several different occasions. During both years, campers and counselors spotted intruders at the night inside of the four hundred and ten acre camp. The former counselor said that she talked to the camp director, Helen Gray, in 1970 after campers came to her and said that they were hearing heavy breathing outside of their tents at night. The next year, Gray called a meeting with the counselors who knew about the previous year's incidents, and Candace later was quoted saying, she cautioned us not to say anything of what had gone on the summer before to new counselors. She didn't want to upset them. Which, if I'm a new counselor coming into a camp, you better fucking warn me, because, I mean, all I can say is thank God social media wasn't a thing back there. Or, I wish it was a thing back then. And more and more stories from former counselors piled up, and somehow they still lost the civil suit. I mean, I definitely think that the absolute least that these girls' families should be entitled to was the civil suit. I mean, that Magic Empire Girl Scouts didn't keep their girls safe. Oh, definitely. And even if they didn't win the suit, if the stories came out earlier and they had more communication, the key to this story, more communication more communication earlier, the girls never would have gone to the camp in the first place, or I bet a large amount of parents wouldn't have sent their children to the camp in the first place. And unfortunately, this case is still full of unanswered questions like this still to this day. So Camp Scott, thankfully, has been left empty and vacant since this horrible night. And from the sounds of it, it's better off that way because they didn't know how to keep anyone safe, including young children and their employees. So let's get into our final thoughts and what we feel about this. So I actually, a lot of this, you know, Brooke research and I, it, a lot of these quotes and things I'm hearing for the first time while we're reading this case. And honestly, 
I had never heard the Gene Hart theory, but one, I think he's guilty. I'm sorry. I think he's for sure guilty. No doubt in my mind. Not a slight doubt. And even if he isn't guilty, he deserves to rot in prison and hell for everything he did to the other women that he was found guilty for. I don't really care if, you know, he was guilty or not, which, like I said, he is. But I, I there's just no doubt in my mind. And it breaks my heart so, so, so much for these families to know who killed your kid. Like, I'm sure they feel the same way we do. They definitely probably think he did it. And to know that this man did it, and he's still out there walking free and he got to walk away and he is living his normal life after doing not only this horrible crime, but other horrible crimes. I would be, I would be sick. And while researching, I was trying to find what happened to Gene Hart after the trial. Like if he went back to prison for the crimes he was supposed to be doing time before this. And unfortunately I couldn't find anything, but you know, that doesn't even, I mean, it does matter, but the fact that these girls never got justice. And when Tori and I wanted to start this podcast, you know, we kind of, we jotted down a list of crimes we wanted to cover. And this was one of my first cases because I remember driving home from Colorado with my fiance and um, I was listening to a podcast called Crime Junkie and literally sobbing in the car. I had to turn, my fiance literally forced me to turn it off because I was just sobbing. I remember crying to him and I was like, these girls are dead and not only did they die in like a horrible accident like you know kids die all the time as unfortunate as sad as it is but to have your child taken away from you in such a gruesome way is just I mean horrible and how do you live with that and the fact that these girls never got any justice I mean still to this day it is years and years and years and years later and the girls are still fighting for or the girls families are still fighting for some sort of justice and I mean, at this point, how often do you see cold cases get solved? And honestly, we would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Please feel free to send us your opinions. Do you think Gene was guilty? Honestly, to me, I feel like this is one of those unsolved cases that really aren't that unsolved. It's just bad justice system, to be honest. So I, we would love to hear your thoughts and and your opinions, and maybe if you hear another theory or you have more info on another suspect or something, please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you guys so much for listening to another True Crime Tuesday episode. As always, like Tori said, feel free to reach out with us with your thoughts. Um, you know, maybe we can even start a a Twitter thread where you guys can chime in and tell us about things maybe we missed. Um, and, you know, make sure to follow us on Twitter or Instagram or our Facebook so you guys can see those and interact with each other. We will be back with another True Crime Tuesday episode coming up, and thank you guys so much for listening.